Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. already a wonderful Wednesday in your heart and home. Uh, And I hope that it's Wisdom Wednesday and maybe even Winsome Wednesday as we live our lives in such a way that others can see the gospel. So that's my uh, lead-off encouragement. Now for some headline news this morning. President Biden is going to present Congress tonight with something that we now know will include a third trillion dollar spending package, actually a more than trillion dollar spending package. Um, So this will be his third more than million dollar spending um, spree since taking office 100 days ago. He is going to ask for one point eight trillion dollars. I told you it was more than a trillion, very nearly two trillion Uh, He is going to be asking for $1.8 trillion in new spending to expand what he describes as the American education system and providing help for child care. And in that, he believes millions more jobs will be created. Well, yes, they will be child care jobs and they will be jobs inside of America's current educational marketplace. Um, He's also proposing a a series of tax hikes, obviously, to pay for that. So um, that will be the that will be the headline news tomorrow morning. I feel very, very confident. The centerpiece of this latest proposal is three hundred and ten billion dollars to offer four additional years of free education. Now, the word free there obviously is ridiculous. It's not free education. It's a three hundred and ten billion dollar education, but it will be four more years of education in addition to the pre-K through 12 that we, the people, already pay for, for uh, every American child. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a massive increase to uh, America's government-run educational system, which we have been critical enough of here um, to be able to um, probably say that the support for this in the Christian community is going to be pretty minimal. He wants to offer two years of universal preschool and two years of free community college, uh, regardless of income. So both in the uh, early stages of life and then post high school, um, the president wants everybody to have uh, four more years of uh, of education at to the cost of the American taxpayer. He's also proposing um, extending child tax credits up to thirty six hundred dollars a year through twenty twenty five. And he wants another $225 billion to ensure that low- and middle-income families do not spend more than 7% of their income on child care. So that portion of the proposal, universal uh, child care, um, probably has much broader support than any other part of this. Uh, and, and, and I would say extending child tax credits 
um, those two will probably have very broad support. To pay for his plan, the president uh, is going to raise taxes. Um, The top marginal tax rate will go from 37 percent to 39.6 percent. Uh, the capital gains will be capital gains will be treated as regular income and taxed at the highest rate, plus a 3.8 percent Obamacare surcharge for a total of 43.4 percent taxation on capital gains for households with more than a million dollars in investment income. Uh, he's also going to tax capital gains at death and eliminate so-called, quote, stepped-up basis, allowing estates to revalue assets after the original owner dies. Um, that is really, really significant for anyone who thinks they are going to pass along anything to the next generation. Um, and he intends to inject $80 billion into the IRS to audit high-income earners uh, with the goal of collecting an additional $700 billion through increased tax compliance over the next 10 years. So there you go. Um, there you go. That's what I will say about that. Um, you're going to hear a lot of people ask the question about um, uh, part of the proposal, which looks to be retroactive, which would be seeking to capture massive market gains in 2021. So part of the proposed tax increase, especially on capital gains, may be retroactive to the year we are now living in. Yep, that's um, that's what you are likely to hear tonight from the President of the United States. We'll talk about all of that tomorrow with Ben Johnson. Right now, we're going to talk with Daryl Crouch about praying together for lasting change. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Daryl Crouch. You can find him at DarylCrouch.substack.com. That's a great place to read what he's writing, including the piece we're leading off with today, Praying Together for Lasting Change. Daryl, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. How, how are you today? I'm, I'm well. I, uh, I thought I should have found a better headline. Uh, people probably spit out their coffee um, with my lead today, so I, I apologize. Let's, uh, let's instead, let, let's pray. Let's, uh, let's, let's talk yeah. about praying together for lasting change, um, the hope for city transformation. Well, a lot of us, uh, as you do, and that's the reason we're talking today, we care about our cities. We care about our communities. We care about some of the implications that your headlines ha- uh, that you started with have on the people that uh, we live near and uh, that we call neighbors. And what I found is that as we do uh, city work, as we step into this space where we're trying to serve our neighbors well, sometimes the doers in us um, forget where the source of real transformation comes from. We're very, and rightly so, intentional to to do and to serve and to give out, ourself, out of ourselves and to do whatever we can to move the needle but ultimately, the work that we're praying for, the work that we're hoping for, comes through um, the Lord just um, working in the lives of people, and that really happens through prayer. And so sometimes our positive outlook is just not what God's called us to. We need to have a positive outlook, but a positive attitude or um, uh, grinding it out to turn uh, obstacles into opportunities that's just not the pathway for transformation. It really is when God's people pray. 
and uh, that lays the foundation, that prepares hearts, that empowers our work together. So let's talk about what prayer does, which is where you go um, in this piece, and I really appreciated that. Prayer reaches out to a powerful God. Absolutely. You know, I, I think we, um, again, we're so resourced, uh, Carmen. I mean, we have mm. so much we have so much available to us, at least in the West, and uh, from technology to to financial resources, education, we are so sophisticated, and uh, those are wonderful things. Those are common grace that God has given to us, but um, that's simply not the source of our power. We pray to a God who is the living God, who is sovereign over everything, who is unlimited in power and love and wisdom, and he is intentional about the way he acts and the way he intervenes in the lives of his people and the lives of the world uh, population and our neighbors included, and um, we can trust him. And so prayer isn't some kind of, uh, again, a a practice that kind of gets us into uh, a more centered place or uh, gives us a better attitude. Uh, Some of that is is true in terms of just in the way that um, intimacy with God uh, gives us peace in our hearts and gives us rest in Him. But prayer moves God. Somebody said, does prayer change me or does prayer change things? And the answer is yes. Prayer changes me, but prayer changes things. And we see that throughout the Scripture. I, I like that. Prayer changes me and prayer changes things. Um, we have many resources, but, you know, it's not the source of our power. Those are just really, I think, tremendously helpful observations. Um, I also thought that in this piece, and again, um, if you guys want to check it out, it's at DarylCrouch.substack.com, Praying Together for Lasting Change. Uh, prayer opens our eyes to what is not easily seen. Absolutely, Carmen. I think I've realized this, and we read it in the text, and we you can see in Second Kings six the story of Elisha and his servant, and chariots of fire surrounding them, and so on. And but I've I've noticed as I've interacted with people over the last several years that the way they respond to me, for example, is not just based on this particular interaction I'm having with them. There are a hundred, maybe a thousand, other things going on in their life that is affecting the way they're responding to me in this particular moment. And uh, there's a lot of things happening in the lives of our neighbors, in the lives of the people that we love, that we cannot see, that God sees and that God is working. And prayer helps open our eyes and open our hearts to those things that are going on around us. And uh, I think we are very, it's just very easy, our eyes, our, our lives uh, move to where our, to what our eyes can see, but prayer moves us to what God is doing, and uh, we can't always see that. Um, so one of the questions that I uh, have learned over time to, to pray, uh, particularly when I am encountering a person who appears to be in in a situation or with a need that I know I can't meet, right? So, um, or I find distress, I find personally distressing or awkward or inconvenient, um, to be, you know, just brutally honest. I, I, I pause and I just ask God, what do you see that I cannot see? Hmm. What, what do you see? Like, because God knows stuff, right, about everybody that I'll never know. Um, I could never know. I mean, he knows the circumstance of their conception. I mean, I'll never know that. I mean, he knows... 
You know, he knows every reality along the way. He knows whether or not anybody ever picked him up as a kid um, or put them down as a kid. Like I, there's a, there are just things about other people that we will never know, but God knows. I mean, he's, he hasn't missed a moment of that person's life and they're precious to him. And so God, what do you see that I cannot see, um, you know, in this other person, in the life of this other person, you know, they arrived at this point, um, because of circumstances that, you know, I, I, I clearly don't understand. Um, so, um, yeah, these helpful questions that we can ask in prayer that tenderize us, um, to, to what's going on in the world. All right. Hey, let's, let's take a very brief break, Daryl, and then let's come back to, um, to the next point, which is that prayer prepares people to receive the help they need the most. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Be strong in the Lord and never give up hope. You're gonna do great things. I already know. God's got his hand on you. All right, continuing my conversation with Daryl Crouch. You can find him at everyoneswilson.org. You can also find what he's writing at darylcrouch.substack.com. Um, Daryl, in this uh, in in this piece that we're discussing right now, praying together for lasting change, um, you make this point about how prayer functions in terms of preparing people to receive the help they need the most. Tell us about that. Well, I think one of the things, and just kind of ping off uh, where we were before the break, I think too that um, when we're when we're dealing with people that are in desperate situa- situations, we're we're really. Uh, our hope being in the Lord means that they're not in a desperate situation. In other words, there are resources available to them and to us that are far beyond our imagination. I still believe that God intervenes in miraculous ways. He is a, um, a help to us in time of trouble. And so as we're thinking about serving our neighbors and helping people and stepping into to spaces that uh, do seem absolutely overwhelming, that God is not overwhelmed. And so as we think about serving people, um, uh, we can the best thing we can do on the front end, and obviously through the process, is to pray that God would prepare them to receive the help that they need the most. I give an example in this piece that we we can try to help people with food or with education. We can we can provide some resources that they need, and sometimes they don't receive what we're trying to give them. And as um, you know, Christian people, sometimes we, we get a little frustrated that folks are, are not uh, excited to, to receive the help that we want to give them. But brokenness is not, first of all, it's not random, as I mentioned, but it's also not monolithic or it's not just in one silo over here. It is a very complicated situation that all of us live in. We're mind and body and soul. We were affected by experiences and relationships we have fears and insecurities uh, that uh, wage war against our souls, and that's true for the people that we're attempting to help. That's true for the people that we're hoping to infuse life into. And so, I think um, one of the um, one of the experiences that Jesus had with his disciples illustrate this. And they were trying to cast out this demon, and and Jesus just simply said, "This kind cannot come out." by anything except prayer. And um, it's a reminder to us that the work that we're doing to, to, to lead people to wholeness in Christ, uh, that's often illustrated by their poverty, by their physical circumstances, by their relational brokenness, um, it's ultimately an issue of the soul. And um, 
The only work that's going to transform a soul is the work of a sovereign God fueled by the prayer of his people. And um, so I just encourage folks not to get too frustrated, uh, not to give up on people who are resisting the help that we think they need, but that we uh, take it before the Lord, that we make a practice of prayer uh, as, as a means of helping those that uh, we love so much. So as I was reading that, um, Daryl, I, I thought about all of the people who had not only prayed but sought to meet the needs of the man um, who is discussed in Mark chapter 5. So we know him. I mean, we don't know his name. We just know him like as the Gerasene demoniac, right, which is mm-hmm. kind of a terrible way to be remembered in history. Um, but, you know, I, I, I feel confident that that man's mother prayed for him and his sisters and brothers prayed for him and the people in his community prayed for him because they were also praying for themselves because they, they have this person who they have tried to help. Um, and then they have tried to bind, and then they have done the only thing that they could figure out to do, which was to put him out of their community because his problems were so great and he was so destructive to self and others. And I feel confident that they prayed, God, do something. I mean, I, we don't, we're past our resources. Like, I, I feel confident that people prayed for him. Or I'm hopeful that they did. And it only took it, literally a momentary encounter with Jesus for that man's life to be utterly transformed, utterly transformed. And I, 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 I'm holding that, I'm holding out that hope, right? I go before God, particularly in those cases, and I, I should go before God for everything, right? But I go before God when I totally recognize that my resources are completely insufficient, not only mine, but the resources that I even know that are available in this world. Like I, God, this is going to take you. Like, I, I don't, I'm, we're at the end of ourselves. And so we look to you. Um, but that the prayers of people are answered by God in his timing and in his way and in, in ways that we could never foresee. I guarantee you, none of those people foresaw that the Messiah was going to show up. You know, he was going to cross a lake and he was going to show up. And that was the only thing he was going to do when he arrived there. He was going to heal that guy and then he's going to get back in the boat and go back to the other side. Like, that's it. That's all he did when he went there. So I just um, I lift up that story to folks as a as a reminder to be praying, as a reminder to be you know inviting God into those situations and recognizing that that man's heart was prepared. He he was prepared. He ran from the tombs down to the water's edge to be there when that guy who he saw still that storm came you know came to the coastline. Mm-hmm. Like he was there. He was the guy who was standing there. And so there's there's a lesson in there for us about being ready and being prepared to receive what God sends as the answer to other people's prayers for us. Absolutely. And he can do more in a moment, as you've mentioned, more in a moment than we can do ever, ever in a lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. A decade of serving our neighbors, God can transform them in a moment. And so I think to depend on him in that way and to trust him. And I, and I would also just say, Carmen, that a lot of us who care about our nation, that care about our communities, that care about our systems of government or education or whatever it is, we can become very agitated. And um, I think the the people that uh, were around this Gerasene demoniac, that there were some evidences that their hearts were not fully trained on the Lord. There are some mm-hmm. things that we know about that community that that tell us that their hearts were not 
um, resting in the Lord and walking with Him. And so I just I would just say that the 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 way that we think about the the world macro really does make a difference in the way that we serve our neighbors in the micro. And um, the God who who um, uh, turns the nations also turns the hearts of our individual neighbors who are captured by sin and by darkness and by oppression. And so we can trust him. We our hearts can be fully when our hearts are fully his. He responds to the prayers of his people. And uh, like you said, he can do more in just that one moment than we could do in in a decade. I just love it. All right. Uh, Daryl also has a really great piece posted uh, at LifewayResearch.com. And I commend that to you as well. Four great commission questions every pastor must ask. But we can't ask them right now, Daryl. We're going to have to leave it right there today. Thank you so Uh, much. I I love talking with you. Have a blessed day. You're awesome. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, this might be relevant to nothing, but sometimes I see a headline and I think to myself, I have to read that. A man has been arrested at JFK Airport after 35 birds intended for singing contest were found in his clothing. So he had 35 live finches in these little in these little cylinders and these little cylinders had a little mesh top so the birds could breathe. They the birds do not appear distressed or uncomfortable at all, but he was he had them sewn into um, the lining of his jacket and then uh, inside the lining of, uh, of of his pant leg down by his ankles. 30, 35, 36 birds. All right. Apparently, you're not allowed to bring those into the country, even if they are all signed up for singing contests. Uh, Daniel Bennett is going to join me next. He's with John Brown's uh, University Center for Faith and Flourishing. He, um, every Monday, offers something called The Overview, which I love to read. And so we're going to talk with him next about what's going on at Seattle Pacific University, uh, what's going on uh, at the level of the Supreme Court, and what a guy from NPR uh, has to say about civil religion in American life. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When struggles come, it's easy to wish your teens wouldn't make dumb decisions or rebel against the values you hold dear. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Your family may seem like it's spiraling out of control, but you have a choice. Keep wishing that everything were different or choose to accept reality. Maybe the struggle you face with your teen today is actually an avenue for God's grace to show up in your household. Perhaps the conflict is actually causing you to trust God for the outcome more now than ever before. So today, don't chase the fantasy of a perfect home with perfect relationships. Thank God for the mess in front of you, because that's what He's chosen to use in your life. Do you have teenagers under your roof? Find more encouragement and helpful resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Responsibility is expose you to people who are doing really good work out there uh, in the world and who are doing a really good job aggregating 
um, news for us that we can actually use and commenting on it in ways that are helpful to us as Christians in the culture today. One of those individuals is Daniel Bennett. You can find him at John Brown University's Center for Faith and Flourishing. You can find him at the Uneasy Citizenship blog. And you can also find him on Substack, which is uh, the source that I use to get his overview on Monday. So it's danielbennett.substack.com. Daniel, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so we're going to look at this week's um, overview. And, um, you know, I'm just going to start at the top. So uh, you say that there's a lot to cover this week, and you lead off with a religion news service um, piece uh, about Seattle Pacific University. Tell us what's going on there. So it seems inevitable in many ways for Christian higher ed, uh, but what happened at Seattle Pacific was a conflict between faculty, staff, and students, and the university's more uh, conservative board of trustees uh, the faculty voted, I think, 72 percent, uh, no confidence in the board after the board uh, refused to change the university's hiring policy with respect to LGBT uh, individuals. So, uh, in, like I said, in many ways, this seems inevitable for Christian higher ed as the culture continues to change and shift with regards to LGBT rights. Um, but uh, this is maybe the first big development in Christian higher ed at that level. So there's going to be people who don't have any idea how universities work or function who are saying to themselves, doesn't the faculty work for the board? <laughs> yeah, they do. Uh, and some universities have stronger faculty. Some universities have stronger boards. Uh, so in this case, it is kind of a big deal. Um, but uh, it, it is a signal of a larger maybe cultural shift at the institution. Uh, there are a lot of uh, faculty. And, and the biggest thing is the alumni, I think, are, you know, there's alumni trying to make noise about this, saying, well, we're going to try to organize a campaign against the university. So it could get kind of ugly. Uh, but you're right. I mean, the board ultimately has the decision to make policy. I think faculty and staff are just making their voices heard. And it's in a pretty uh, sub substantive way. All right, so you guys can read the um, the underlying article at Religion News Service, um, or you could just get Daniel Bennett's Substack and read the roundup, which, uh, is, of course, is helpful as well. I think um, Albert Moeller also commented at length on this piece in, um, in a recent episode of The Briefing, if you want to check that out. Um, let's talk about Kelsey, da Kelsey Dallas. First of all, I like her personally. Um, she works at the Deseret News, and she seems— um, um, she reports at what I would describe as a really rapid rate. You describe it as torrid, a torrid <laughs> pace of reporting on religion, law, and politics. Her production is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I'm impressed. Uh, she's been she's been having a pretty good few year run here. I first uh, encountered her several years ago when she was doing some more work on the Christian legal movement. But it seems like she gets, she's just kept the gas pedal to the floor. It's been fun to watch. Yeah. So let's talk about um, you've got two pieces um, that you highlight this week from from Kelsey Dallas at Deseret. Um, first, she's detailing religious freedoms, as you say, impressive winning streak at the nation's highest court. What um, what's going on at the Supreme Court of the United States? Because I think that we often as Christians hear and allow ourselves to imagine that religious liberty is under threat in ways that, um, you know, every part of society is suppressing the Christian voice. That's actually not true at the Supreme Court. 
Yeah, and this is where it gets complicated to talk about religious freedom under siege. I think if you were to talk about it in terms of culture or maybe even uh, a prevailing political headwinds, you you might be right there in terms of support for traditional uh, religious uh, viewpoints. Uh, but in the legal system, which tends to be more reactive and, and generally more conservative, uh, not politically, but just theoretically or ideologically, maybe, uh, the Supreme Court has been extraordinarily friendly to religious freedom claims, uh, not just because of the conservative political makeup of the Supreme Court right now, but also just as a result of some of the claims that are being brought to uh, the court. So real real briefly here, uh, the test that's been in place for evaluating religious freedom claims since 1990, the Smith case, that seems to be in danger of being uh, overturned in terms of in, uh, in in favor of a more friendly reading of religious freedom uh, law. So uh, that seems to be the tea leaves. It's hard to say exactly, but uh, it, it has been an impressive streak for religious freedom. And then the other piece that you highlight um, from from Kelsey is uh, is on the latest report of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. The report is 108 pages long, which most of us are not going to read. And as you say, you know, like, thankfully, Kelsey breaks it down for us. So what does she break down in her article uh, in the Deseret News on um, on religious freedom internationally? Yeah, so this is, I think, uh, something super helpful about the International Religious Freedom uh, Panel that we have here in the United States. Uh, you've had some really uh, prominent scholars and voices on that uh, on that commission over the years, and they issue annual reports about the state of religious freedom globally. Uh, I think it helps Christians, I think, to put some things in context. While you know Christians do have uh, concerns and challenges in the United States, they really do pale in comparison to challenges that that. Uh, Christians and other religious minorities are facing overseas. Uh, and this particular report highlights the role that the pandemic played here to the extent that uh, the pandemic was sometimes used as cover uh, to oppress further religious minorities, including Christians in non-majority Christian countries. So I think it's helpful to remember uh, or maybe maybe to put this uh, these challenges in context. So it doesn't mean they're not valid, but it does mean that we should be very thankful to be living in a country that we do right now. All right. I am talking with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University Center for Faith and Flourishing. Um, Daniel, how do you like people ask me this all the time. So I'll turn and ask you the question as well. There are a thousand headlines every single day that um, that we could lift up in a conversation at the intersection of faith and uh, and faith and freedom, faith and law, faith and politics, faith and cultural questions. Um, how do you sort of sort and sift through what's the um, what's the particular colander strainer? I don't know. I need a better word that you're yeah, using no. cheese grater. What are you using <laughs> to decide what sort of gets into your substack? Yeah, for me, honestly, it is social media and cultivating a, uh, a a number of voices that I've come to to rely on and trust as far as good information. So. I use Twitter uh, primarily as a news source um, and, and sometimes for sarcasm, but primarily as a news source. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's been helpful to follow journalists and scholars and, and uh, activists and other voices from, from across the spectrum, which highlight voices that wouldn't necessarily make it into the, you know, the national news uh, at a regular level. Um, so that's helpful, uh, following diverse set of, sets of voices. I also think it's helpful uh, – 
I, I, I know you know Nap Nasworth. I know he's been mm-hmm. on the show before. I know you've talked with him. Um, he does we're something similar. From, so we're actually pals from college. We went to college together. Oh, really? We were young, oh, we were young life leaders together. I know. Oh, perfect. Okay. Mm-hmm. But he has a really, he does a really good job too, um, focus more on the research and religion and politics. And I think a lot of it with him too, I think he's just, he's exposing, or his, I think he's just exposed to a lot of different perspectives out there. Um, so it does take some time to kind of build that, that, uh, information network. Um, but, uh, it, you know, hopefully people are sharing good information and a diverse view or a diverse range of information. That's, that's what's worked for me in the past. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Daniel Bennett in just a moment. We're going to turn our attention to an article um, by NPR's Tom Jelton, and we're going to slow down and wander around in it a little bit because it is, uh, it's about civil religion in American life, and it's an important topic for us to consider, particularly how we understand not only that term, but its reality. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is a new day. Listener Rosella, uh, ever, ever helpful, says, um, I think the term you were looking for would be rubric. Yes, Rosella, you're absolutely right. Thank you so much. Um, However, cheese grater came to mind. So there you go. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Daniel Bennett is with me from John Brown University Center for Faith and Flourishing. You can find him at the Uneasy Citizenship blog. You can also find him on Substack. So that's danielbennett.substack.com. We are looking um, at a number of things in the overview for Monday, April the 26th. And so let's turn our attention, Daniel, to NPR's Tom Jelton. Tell, tell people um, sort of what this conversation about civil religion encompasses. So in the sociology of religion, there's this idea that uh, there is some civil religion that permeates American life and culture. And this isn't necessarily Christianity, although it's heavily influenced by Christianity. But it's, it's this idea that there are certain belief systems or views that are shared widely by, by most Americans, regardless of specific religious traditions. So maybe this is a shared system of a sense of maybe American exceptionalism or divine providence or uh, things of that nature. And uh, this is something that politicians like to draw on regularly in their, in their political rhetoric, something that has a lot of wide appeal. Um, but one of the reasons why I liked this uh, Tom Jelton piece from NPR is he's interviewing scholars and folks who have studied this concept to see how the term civil religion is maybe evolving or changing in the midst of uh, changes to American society. Walk us through some of the examples that he uses, because I I just really thought that um, you did a really good job helping us see into this piece. So I'm kind of we're going to use what you're doing to help us see into Tom Jelton's piece so we don't have to read the whole thing. Yeah. So one of the things I appreciated about him is interviewing folks, like I said, who've done a lot of a lot of research on this. And one of the implications for a changing uh, conception of uh, civil religion uh, is maybe less reliance on uh, Christian thinkers in American history. And this isn't even folks you would necessarily hear from in church, but folks you know, like Martin Luther King Jr., for example, who who obviously was influenced by by his Christian faith and Christian beliefs. Um, there's a concern from uh, from some that a civil religion moves kind of away from Christianity, maybe in reaction to 
perception that Christianity has been patriarchal or oppressive uh, historically, that we lose a lot of those helpful and influential voices in American history who have been uh, characterized by a very, uh, very useful Christian faith pertaining to the American uh, experiment. So there is a concern from some scholars that that's where we're heading. Um, but I think there was some good pushback, too, to say, well, it's more complicated than this, right? We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can, we can keep some of these things, even if we have maybe a changing understanding of what good civil religion is. Okay, so for people listening right now, um, maybe just to distill it down, when we think of, um, of civil religion, also sometimes referred to as a civic religion, hmm. I think we're talking about um, the implicit religious values of a nation. And sometimes we just assume that our religious values are those shared by our entire country. And I think that part of the tension that people are experiencing, Daniel, is that um, we're finding out that everybody doesn't share our implicit religious values. That, you know, the shadow of the shadow of the shadow is no longer strong enough um, to, to sort of bind us together in terms of our symbols. Um, the flag comes to mind. Um, yeah. Monuments come to mind. Uh, even national cemeteries. I mean, you know, whether or not they're going to continue to be crosses on placed on um, on graves in national cemeteries across the country. These are questions that like make the feathers ruffle um, in terms of Christians engaged in the conversations of the day because we we simply have come to understand America as at least foundationally. Um, uh, Judeo-Christian. Sure. And, Listen, and it yeah, doesn't, I mean, like, it's hard, it's hard for us to imagine that maybe that's not the country we live in. And I think you can look at recent Supreme Court cases that tackle this. There was a case a couple of years ago out of Maryland about this World War I monument uh, that was uh, privately, you know, funded, you know, or something. Yep. Yeah, the, yeah, mm -hmm. the, the Maryland mm -hmm. Cross case, right? And um, you know, the arguments were, well, you know, the government shouldn't be involved in maintaining this clearly religious memorial, but the arguments in favor of keeping it up, which it ultimately it was, it wasn't, you know, torn down or anything, was this isn't a reference to Christianity. It's a reference to American history, right? And the fact that it's a cross is irrelevant um, because at the time this was seen as a an important message by the people who built the memorial. Um, but you're right. There is that tension there uh, as the U.S. gets more diverse religiously, uh, ethnically, racially. Um, there's going to be a tension in terms of what constitutes our civil religion. But I think it's also opportunities for Christians in this day and age to reflect on, OK, well, what can we learn from from new folks' religious backgrounds and values and how can we incorporate that into our civil religion? So I think there's opportunities, but there's also ways that we can seek to proactively defend the, the positive elements of our religious commitments into our national civil religion. All right, Daniel, um, we probably have time to talk about one more thing. What's the one more thing you want to talk about today? Well, I think we're uh, maybe a year out from the Bostock uh, Supreme Court decision from last year. Um, kind of ties into the Seattle Pacific case from earlier uh, in the uh, earlier in the episode. So maybe talk about that. Yeah. Um, what do we need to know about that? Remind us. Well, we've, we've lived yeah, a little since last year. Right. Yeah. It's been it's been a little time. But ultimately, the Supreme Court decision expanded uh, Title seven 
which uh, governs anti-discrimination laws in the United States and, and statutes, uh, to include sexual orientation and gender identity. This is something that Congress hadn't explicitly done, but it's something that a majority of the Supreme Court, uh, authored by uh, conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch, uh, did in the decision, saying that, well, sexual orientation and gender identity is really wrapped up in sex, which is protected under, under Title VII. So there was a lot yeah. of concern... Yeah, a lot of concern about how much this, uh, what this means for the future of religious liberty. A lot of uh, more socially conservative folks say it's the end of religious liberty, et cetera. I'm not going in that direction. Um, but, uh, and, and honestly, I think the courts have been pretty, pretty good bulwark against that view. Yeah, it is one, though, that we should we should remember and know about and sort of have an index card in our minds um, related to. So thank you so much for taking us back to that. That's the Bostock v. Clayton County decision. Um, and you can read more about it at danielbennett.substack.com, where he's got a great piece up on that topic. Daniel, as always, thank you so much. We love talking with you. I hope you'll come back. Thanks very much. Absolutely. All right. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Patient and gracious waiting for uh, my mind to land on a word. That's the way I will uh, describe, well, your willingness today. Thank you so much. Colander, filter, cheese grater, sieve. Yes, rubric. What is the rubric we're using today to filter through what is uh, presented to us and how we will respond? Let us, in fact, have the very mind of Christ on the matters of the day. Let Christ, let the gospel, let God's redemptive arc over human history be the be the filter, be the rubric, certainly be the lens or the worldview through which you and I are uh, not only receiving all of the information that is flooding in our direction, but sifting and sorting through it and certainly responding to it. Uh, let it be, uh, let God's view of things be the way we see people and situations and issues. And then let God's word be that which helps us to formulate responses to all that is going on in inside of us, in our relationships, in our homes, in our communities, in our places of work, in our nation, and yes, in the world. There are lots of things to be praying in terms of praying the headlines today around the world. Leading that list would be the situation in India. They're, they've been averaging 300,000 new cases of the coronavirus, and obviously their health system is completely overwhelmed. Um, many, you're going to hear many, many, many calls for prayer uh, in in this situation because it certainly is one that only God, uh, only God, has the resources to meet. And so, let's God people, let God's people respond as we are able. But let us certainly uh, have our hearts turned in their direction in an attitude of prayer. All right, we got another hour of mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.